0: Well, if you remember, prior to Advent, we were in the book of Habakkuk. And we return now because there's one chapter left. I mean, there's only three chapters, but there's been a lot in Habakkuk uh, that has been a challenge, been an encouragement, I, I believe, to us. And we come to chapter three of Habakkuk. And for the next couple of weeks, we will finish out there. In the words of this prophet. Remember, basically, he uh, is—he starts off and he asks the Lord a lot of questions, and uh, the Lord answers him. He didn't like the answers that he gets. Okay, how many of us have been there? Uh, Oh Lord, this is what I want. This is this is what I'm asking for. And He's got a different plan than us, which is not uncommon. And it is really uh, up to us to to come to Him and to His Word and begin to be changed. So that we begin to understand what he is doing. And this is what has happened in Habakkuk's life from chapter 1 to chapter 2. So uh, it's only two verses, so um, uh, you might as well stand uh, as I read <laughs> Our Heavenly Father, please come upon us with your Holy Spirit and open our eyes. That we might understand how it is we are to come before you and what that means and what we are to seek when we come to you we pray this in christ's name amen so this is habakkuk chapter three verses one and two a prayer of habakkuk the prophet according to shiganoth O lord i have heard the report of you and your work O lord do i fear in the midst of the years revive it in the midst of the years make it known in wrath remember mercy this is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. Now, chapter 3 of Habakkuk is just, a, it's basically a long prayer. And it's one of the great prayers of the Bible. And, and it's one that's pretty much overlooked so often. We think of uh, Abraham's prayer when he came to Sodom and he's talking to God and said, You can find 50 righteous, 40 righteous, etc. cetera. Um, We find uh, David's prayer as he collects the materials to build the temple. He's not the guy who's going to build the temple. That's Solomon's job. But David is responsible for collecting the material. He has this great prayer. Of course, there are some uh, in the New Testament as well. Um, But if you remember, the prophet started out in chapter 1 by asking God why he was slow to answer Habakkuk's prayer for revival. And that's what he wants. He wants to see a revival because Habakkuk is pretty well aware of the, uh, of the sin that's going on in, in his people's lives. Um, they are uh, usurping, their the, the poor, they're uh, oppressing the poor, they're Using their their wealth in a terrible way, uh, there's no justice in the land. They have turned away from the Lord. It's just all bad. And and Habakkuk's like, Lord, this is a perfect time for you to bring revival to the land. And of course, we know that uh, God's answer to Habakkuk is, I'm going to send Babylon to punish you instead. Okay? And that and Habakkuk just just wasn't real excited, as you can imagine, about that. Not what he was hoping to hear. So the prophet cries out. And I, I remember. Babylon is a terrible country. It's a terrible nation. They did terrible things. But as we have, we jump ahead and, look, in a sense, look back into what ha- happens, we know that Jerusalem falls, and that's 586 B.C., and they're taken into captivity into Babylon. And they keep thinking that, well, the Lord's going to watch over us and send us right back very quickly. And the words of the prophet uh, Jeremiah are, no, plant gardens, build houses. You're going to be here a while. Okay. In fact, they were there for 70 years before anybody even had a chance to return. Some stayed in Babylon. And you remember uh, at Christmas time, we said that's probably how the, the Magi who were from that area learned about the coming of the Messiah from the Jews who, who remained in that area. But the prophet cries out in the, in the first prayer in chapter 1. And. And he says, how how can you use such a wicked nation to judge your people? And God's answer in chapter 2 summed up in that great one verse, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. And then the Lord goes on to explain how those who are puffed up will be brought low. And what he's talking about there is, yes, I'm using the Babylonians at this point, to come and judge my disobedient people but they will not escape justice i will come and judge the babylonians and we know from history that the group called the medes and the persians came and overthrew the babylonians eventually so the times are bad and they're going to get worse but the righteous shall live by faith no matter what they face no matter how bad it gets if you are righteous you shall live by your faith and your faith tells us that this is the way that the Lord is, and this is the way that he acts, and he will keep his covenant with his people, even if the short term looks very dire. And to seal all of this in the prophet's heart, we get that statement in chapter 2, if you have your Bible, look at that, chapter 2, verse 20, and we sang this quite a few times, The Lord is in his holy temple, let all the earth keep silence. As, as to give comfort to Habakkuk, to give peace to his heart. Don't think that the Lord is not paying attention. Now, we may face those same things, and, and you call out to the Lord, Lord, are, are you not listening? Do you not know what's going on inside my life? Do you not see the chaos that seems to rule? Do you not see how I'm being put upon? The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent. The only thing left for the prophet to do is to come back with his original desire. Lord, bring revival to your people. Bring revival to your people. Now, that was the request of chapter 1, pretty much, but it was kind of rough, okay? It was not as refined a prayer as we see in chapter 3. It's as if... He had to be reminded of who God is and his character and his attributes and all of his power after that original prayer, which was kind of rough and kind of demanding, as we'll see. And he has a time to collect his thoughts as the question and answer period, in a sense, that has gone through as he's talked to the Lord. And now he writes his original prayer in a much more refined fashion. So let's take a look first at just the nature of prayer in general. And really, in its simplest form, it's just talking to God. Okay, It is just going before the Lord and talking to him and then remaining silent and being with him. There's no need for fancy language. The Lord don't, does not only listen to those who speak in King James or have seminary degrees or uh, have special places in their houses devoted to prayer. Now, there's nothing wrong with any of that. The Lord understands every language. He understands the cries of those who have just come to Christ and those who have been believers for many, many years. Prayer can be very formal, as we see in chapter 3, as we see also in Luke 1 and the Magnificat. That's one of the great prayers. It's Mary's prayer, and it is, a, it is in a very formal form. Now, I have a retired pastor friend who was part of, of, of the work of the wineskins. He was on, helped write the book, and, et cetera. And whenever we were at a large meeting and there was time for somebody to pray, I'd always call on him because that was his spiritual gift, okay? I mean, the man could pray, and it was, it was rich and it was deep, but it was simple at the same time and straightforward. And, and his, la- his command of the English language was so great, um and you know you just had been in the presence of god you know after he had prayed he was just that was his gift okay and and i would expect that the prayers of new believers to be a little bit more disorderly than those who have been believers for a long time um mature believers i would expect to have a deeper and richer understanding of of god of his character of what the word says uh, and and perhaps to have their prayers um infused with god's word um perhaps some of the psalms that you've been reading lately and and those things come out in your prayers um how you pray or the type of language you use or where you pray is is not as important as what praying okay (laughs) well i'm just no good at it so i'm not going to do it no you pray you go before the lord pour your heart out for the lord if it helps write something down i mean i there's, there's a book i've talked about before it's called the valley of vision it's the book of puritan prayers it is fantastic if you want a guide to help you and in, in see how other people have prayed let's go by the valley of vision it is a great book so habakkuk's prayer three parts we start with part one today which is verse one and two then three and fifteen to fifteen and then 16 to 19 we'll close up um So let's look at how he lays this out in these two verses. So the first thing does, Habakkuk has the right posture as he comes to the Lord. And it is a posture of humility. A posture of humility. You're going to speak to the one who has created you, the one who knows your thoughts before you have them the words that are going to come out of your mouth he already knows he has created the universe he knows every hair on our head okay how should you come to this great god you should come humbly you don't deserve to be there but he draws you he makes the way for you to come to him and he says i have heard of your fame i've heard of your fame heavenly father see you can't approach the lord with an attitude that you deserve anything from him. Okay? You know what you deserve from him, and you don't get that. That's judgment. That's that's punishment for sin. We don't get that. But you can't come to him expecting, demanding, being driven by some sense of self-righteousness that God owes you what you are praying for. You can't say, God, I have been so faithful, it's time for you to pay me back. Okay, No, that, that just doesn't work. Okay, that does not work at all. But that's insistence is not demanding. It is okay to be insistent in prayer. Think of something that you have been praying for, whether it be the work in someone's heart for salvation, whether it be their growth or their protection, and you've been praying that same basic prayer or that same subject for years and years and years there are probably people in your life that you've been praying for for their salvation. God is not God does not sit up there and go, "Ran, you prayed that prayer 12 years ago and I heard you the first time. You don't have to keep bringing it up." Okay? No. It's okay. It's okay to continue to bring that before the Lord because in the midst of that continued prayer, he's going to work on on my heart. And what do I really need to pray for? How should I structure this? You know, is it really my desire or is this the Lord's desire? He works that out as we continue to seek Him. Philippians 4 6. Worry about nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Requesting and insistence, persistence, is not demanding. It is not demanding. The desires of our selfish hearts, demanding of the Lord to meet those, that's not the correct way to pray. Think of the potter and the clay. Does the pot complain to the potter? Does the pot make demands of the potter? No, the potter shapes the clay in the way that he deems appropriate. So, chapter 1, Habakkuk's prayer are more complaints. Okay, more complaints than prayer. There's not a lot of theological understanding there. Not a lot of richness or deepness or evidence that he really is, is uh, understanding what the Lord does. He says, How, why do you tolerate these treacherous people? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up the righteous? So he's, he's calling out to the Lord. Now, sometimes that's all we can do. We, can, we don't have answers, and we want answers from the Lord, and we come to him, and we cry out in our hearts, Lord, why are you doing this? Why are you allowing this? We pour ourselves out before the Lord, but we don't stop there. You can't just simply say, well, I screamed at God, now that's all I can do. No, you have to wait. You have to look for that answer. And when he answers, you have to be ready for it. Why are you doing this? Why are you allowing this? And he says, Well, I'm going to send Babylon to judge the people, so I know that's not what you wanted, but I've got a plan that's working, and this is part of it. So he has this little talk with the Lord, summon one, summon two, and a reminder of who the Lord is. And the prayer in chapter three is very different. It is very different, it's more mature. It takes into account what the prophet has heard from the Lord in these chapters. Now, the prayers in chapter one are not bad, okay? Don't think that you can't do that. As I said, the Lord calls us to come to him with our our angst, our worry, our concern, our joys, everything, and lay them before him. But the more you learn about God and the more you learn about his character, and the deeper, therefore, the deeper and the richer your prayer life should be, the more you, you can differentiate between what I want and what the Lord says he is about to do. Okay, the heart of the difference between chapter 1 and chapter 3 is here. In chapter 1, Habakkuk had eye trouble, eye, eye trouble. Okay, Not eye trouble, but eye trouble. Because his focus was upon himself and upon his people. Now his focus is upon the Lord. He's taken his eyes off of the immediate context and looks at what the Lord is doing. Let me quote something here from uh, uh, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. How was Habakkuk brought to such a position? It would seem that it was when he stopped thinking of his own nation, or the Chaldeans, that would be the Babylonians, and contemplated only the holiness and justice of God against the dark background of the sin of the world. Usually we go to the Lord and, and with our list of things, and we want to get right to it, okay? Sit and contemplate how awesome he is, how great he is. What has he done in the past? So he's had a chance to do this. I continue with Jones. Our problems can nearly all be traced to our persistence in looking at the immediate problem themselves instead of looking at them in the light of God. So long as Habakkuk was looking at Israel and the Chaldeans, he was troubled. Now he has forgotten Israel as such, and the Chaldeans, and his eyes are on God. He has returned to the realm of spiritual truth, the holiness of God, sin in man and in the world, and so he is is able to see things in an entirely new light. He is now concerned with the glory of God and with nothing else. When things are seen from a spiritual viewpoint, there can only be an acknowledgement that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the holiness of God and the sin of man are the only things that matters. So that's what needs to happen when we come to the Lord in prayer. Any thought of we deserve this. Any thought of, hey, Lord, I put $10 in the, in the plate today. I expect to find $100 when I get home. Any demands like that? No. What What did the tax collector pray? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Humility, we have to approach God in the right way. Secondly, I think part of prayer is, as Habakkuk lays it out here, adoring God, or adoration. I stand in awe of your deeds. I stand in awe of your deeds. God's worth is far above our own, therefore he is worthy of our worship. In fact, he is the only thing worthy of our worship. Our prayers are usually full of requests, that's how Habakkuk started, but they were a little light on worship, they were a little light on adoring God, of remembering his mighty works, that's chapter one. So we need to begin our prayers with who God is. He's awesome, he's holy, he is other, he is righteous, and he loves us, and he calls us to talk with him and to spend time with him. His character, his deeds, should be first in our thoughts, in our hearts. Then our desires will align more with his. Now we get to the part that we're pretty good at, the ask, okay, the requests. Uh, We have our list of things that we want to pray for and our list of people that we want to pray for. Um, And and that's not bad because the Lord says, bring them to me, ask, it's okay. But we have to remember these other things. How do we approach God? Who is God? What does he call us to do? So the ask, and Habakkuk has a two part, two part request, okay? First, he asks for God's deeds and desires to be renewed. Habakkuk is not asking that his own work be renewed, or his own efforts, or his own thoughts, but those of the Lord be renewed. So do we start on a task and then ask the Lord to bless the task that we're on? Or do we begin by saying, Lord, direct me to where you are at work. Direct me to what serves your purposes, what brings you glory, and then bring your hand upon me that I might do those things in faithfulness. See, our emphasis can't be on what we're building, what we're doing, what we desire, it's got to be on the heart of the Lord. Renew your deeds. Revive your work, O Lord. Habakkuk also prays for the revival of the people. Revive and make your works known. Now, to revive means to make alive, to take what is spiritually dead and to give it life. You take off the old, you put on the new. You give them a new heart. That's, your, that's revival in, in, in Christian terms. Habakkuk could have prayed for the Lord to change his mind. That's, Lord, I want you to change your mind concerning your judgment upon your people by the Babylonians. But he didn't do that. If the prophet was only thinking of himself, he, he might have done that. But now his eyes are upon the Lord. Save us, Lord, from the coming judgment is not part of his prayer. He's gotten his mind right. It's no longer set upon himself. It's set upon the Lord and his will for his people. So he says, Lord, establish your work. Revive the work that you were doing in your people. Bring revival out of this disaster that is coming. Now, how many of us in the midst of trial or struggle, long term perhaps, have called out to the Lord, Lord, in the midst of this, suffering in the midst of this trial, revive my heart. Revive the heart of those around me who, who have to go through this with me. There is an invasion coming, and it can't be stopped. The Babylonians cannot be stopped. And Habakkuk has come to understand that, and he says to the Lord, do a great work of revival in the midst of this. Focus your the eyes and hearts of your people upon you as Babylon comes in the midst of these bad times. Because as we historically speaking, bad times are often when revival comes. When times and situations look at their lowest and their most difficult and most dire, often that is when revival comes. Remember back right after 9-11, in, in the special things that we had here in the sanctuary. <coughs> And in our praise and prayer time, for the next two or three weeks, it was packed. We went from, from six or seven in praise and prayer to over 50 for two weeks. And then it kind of wore off, and people stopped coming. Okay, and we went back to the original numbers. See, in times of trouble, people, even non-believers will seek the Lord for some reason, because... Because, you know they can't explain it. Who could explain that, that evil? And they didn't know. So where did they go? They went to seek it here. But that didn't last, unfortunately. So let's go a little bit further back in history. The time of the Reformation. The time of the Reformation is one of the great revivals in the church history. The church becomes very corrupt in the 1500s. I mean, it started before, but it reached its peak there in the 1500s. And the Pope in Luther's day had had this great batch of illegitimate children and he would raise them up to positions of power and authority within the church so you know it was all kind of incestuous and corrupt there one of the church leaders pope leo the 10th said god has given us the papacy let us enjoy it okay so it was kind of kind of rough and Really, the people in the pews were superstitious. They were ignorant of the word of God. The emphasis was on working their way to heaven, not upon grace. So Luther followed in the footsteps of people like Huss and Wycliffe, who wanted to put the word of God in the language of the people of that day. And they understood that nothing short of the renewing work of the Lord was going to make a difference in the life of the church. They thought of the words of the prophet Isaiah, I will pour out water on a thirsty land, streams on the dry grounds. The land will be thirsty, and the word of God will come and satisfy. So Luther came face to face with the words of Habakkuk and the words of Paul, the just shall live by faith, and he challenged the church of that day. Hence, the revival, the Reformation. Move forward 200 years. Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was in uh, Northampton, Massachusetts, he had taken over the pulpit that his grandfather had been in for sixty years Solomon Stoddard during Stoddard's time. there had been what Edward called five uh, five periods of quickening they were movements of the spirit for revival. but by the time Edwards took over that pulpit, he was dealing with third generation Christians. they had not been part of any of those revivals they went through the motions uh, they said the things but their hearts had never been enlivened never been quickened according to that terminology they had the trappings of christianity and only a movement edwards was convinced only a movement of the holy spirit would change this he began to preach the clear problem sin the clear answer grace in christ people would throw themselves down in the aisles Edwards was not an exciting individual from all that we can get. He was just a big brain and a great man of faith. And as he would preach, literally, they would throw themselves in the aisle, crying out for mercy from God. And in fact, Northampton at that time had a population of 1,100. 300 of those were listed as coming to Christ, almost 30%. We move forward a little bit more. England in the late 1700s. George III, who was king then, asked a lawyer, whose name was Blackstone, to visit the major churches in London and see what they were preaching. Blackstone reported back to the king, I can't tell the difference between the words of Muhammad and Confucius. They're not any different than what is being preached in the big churches in London at that time. It was at that point in history when men like Wesley, George Whitefield, began to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, and a great revival came upon England. The second great awakening happened after Presbyterian pastor James McGready began to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Half a million people over the over the the, the time period of those forty years it is estimated came to Christ. There's the businessman's revival in the middle of the eighteen hundreds. There's a guy, Jeremy Lamford. He started a noon prayer meeting for businessmen that turned into. A movement across the country where men gathered at noon, businessmen to pray and to read and study the Word. A million people, it is estimated, came to Christ during that movement. The Welsh revivals in the early 1900s can be traced to a guy named Joseph Jenkins. No, no relationship. Uh, although a lot Jenkins came out of Wales, okay, uh, and and was really became associated with jenkins and a guy named joshua and a guy named roberts who all were set their hearts upon praying to the lord for revival and it came mostly out of the coal miners they would stand outside the coal mines and these guys would come out you know covered in dust and they would preach the gospel And, and the tears would run down through the coal dust of these miners faces and then when the immigrants came from Welsh into Pennsylvania in particular, they heard of these revivals. It wasn't long before a revival began in Wilkesboro, spread to numerous cities. 10,000 people in the Methodist churches alone came to Christ in a one year period from the Welsh revivals that transferred over into Pennsylvania. There have been revivals in modern day, some good, some not so good. Some can be classified as revivals in the classic sense, and others cannot. We see strange behaviors like barking like dogs and falling down and laughing. I don't find those things in Scripture. What I do find is a revival that's filled with confession of sin and repentance and singing and prayer and brokenness before the Lord and the restoration that only Jesus Christ can bring. But as much as we like revival, it's only a generation. Think of Jonah and Nineveh. What happened to the second generation? They went right back to where they were before. Jonah walked through Nineveh, preached the gospel. You know, three days and the Lord's judgment's going to come. Everybody sat in was in sackcloth, even the animals, the king said. All their hearts were changed. The next generation, no evidence of that. They went right back to where they were. Our children and our grandchildren don't get into heaven on our coattails. They don't. So the first two chapters of Habakkuk presented question and answer. Lord, why are you doing this? And the Lord answers and, he, and he reminds him. So God has answered Habakkuk with statements of his sovereignty, of his promises, of God's character. It's time to move forward from those original questions. Habakkuk rephrases this now. And at the very end, at the very end, Habakkuk's praying for renewal, Renewal, when uh, Israel will, even though Israel will soon be invaded. And he says what here? The very last line of verse 2. In wrath, remember mercy. Wrath of God is something we don't usually like to talk about in church. But he is a God of wrath. That's one of his, his character qualities. One of his attributes. He brings wrath on those things which are sinful in which are evil but habakkuk is calling out to the lord as you bring your wrath remember your mercy comes down to our individual hearts comes down to our individual wills here will we be like the pharisee who boasted in his perceived holiness and righteousness or will we be like the tax collector lord have mercy on me a sinner Just remember who went home justified that day. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you are good and righteous. We have no business coming before you except the fact that you have made a way for us to do so and you draw us unto yourself. Lord, in these days, in these days as we look around at our nation, as we look around at the world, evil is still here. Sometimes we think it is is more prevalent than ever before, but times have been bad many, many ages, many seasons in history. But today, Lord, we're going to pray for revival first in our own hearts. Remind us of who you are. Remind us of your character. Remind us that you, the God of all men, the God of this earth, the God of this universe, it is you who sustains all things. You who created us. You who have known us from before the foundations of the world. And you who have sent your son to atone for our sin. Fix this in our hearts, Lord. That we would not think that we are righteous in and of ourselves but that we would, in humility, come before you and give you thanks. To adore you, to wait upon you, to rest in you, to trust in you. And then, Lord, use us, the words of our mouths, the actions of our hands and feet, the attitudes that we purvey, to communicate that to those around us. Change may take place in their hearts and in their lives. We are weak and feeble. But you have chosen to use the likes of us to do great works in this world. Lord, let us not be afraid of the response of men. But let us rest in what Christ has already done and what we know he will do. We pray this in Jesus' name.